Review, brought to you by LitHub Radio. Thank you so much for joining me today, Juliet Grames. Oh, thank you for having me. You're the author of The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna, and you're also the associate publisher at Soho Press, yes? Yes. Um, I went to a little party thrown in your honor when the galleys for this book came out, and I was in love right away. Um, And at that event, you told us a little bit about how this book that you wrote, this epic, um, is based on a true story of what happened to your grandmother. And I was wondering if you could share that with us. Yeah, sure. So Stella Fortuna is a fictional character. It was invented for this novel. But um, she was inspired by a real fracture that happened in my family when I was five years old. Um, So I come from... Uh, an Italian-American family that's very tight-knit, and my grandparents were immigrants from the south of Italy. And my grandmother was best friends with her uh, younger sister, my great-aunt Connie, and they had spent their entire lives together. They had Mm -hmm. married best friends. They lived in houses that shared the same backyard, and they kind of raised their kids jointly. Mm. And um, when I was five years old, my grandmother had a traumatic brain injury that was... uh, Basically, the doctor said she was going to die, and they suggested an experimental procedure, which was a lobotomy that would allow her brain to swell and and save her life. And they said that if they conduct this um, operation, she would be a vegetable for the rest of her life, and she'd probably be sitting in front of a TV with a feeding tube. But everyone, all of her many, many children, you know, banded together. How many children? Six. Okay. My mother has five brothers, so yeah. (laughs) Um, And uh, and they're they're like, of course, we're going to save mommy's life. We've got to do this. It doesn't matter. We have to do everything we can. And the doctors were very wrong. She had a complete, an almost complete recovery and was dancing at a wedding a few weeks later. And, you know, I mean, all that is, um, you know, a very happy story. But the, the sad part of the story is that her personality was completely changed by this lobotomy. Uh, How so? So a number of kind of trivial things that right. happened. Um, so famously, she was obsessed with the color red uh, afterward, huh. which maybe had to do with the accident and the blood that, you know, after her fall. Sure. Um, she also was sort of would get very confused about language. So she might address you in Italian, but she would address an Italian speaker in English or, you know. Um, right. So that became muddled and her judgment sort of went and she uh, lost all of her inhibitions. So, um, you know, she wouldn't kind of rein herself. Like my famous example is if she hit you because playfully, you know, she yeah. was just kind of, you know, she could actually really leave a bruise. She could hit you really oh, hard. No. Or, I know. So post lobotomy um, grandma. T- exactly. Leave exactly. A, leave a dent. Um, but the most traumatizing thing that happened was when she woke up from her coma, she hated her sister. She would not speak to her. They couldn't be in the same room together. She would, you know, try to kill her, like try to push her down the stairs. And as I said, no inhibition. And like, this was actually really bad. And um, and it was heartbreaking for her sister, who'd right. been there her entire life. They'd been best friends and now suddenly, you know, had this relationship totally taken away from her. So, um as I said, I was five when this happened, and it was a really formative experience in my childhood. Sure. And it made me sort of obsessed with a number of things. One about this 
relationship between them, um, between these sisters and what had gone wrong. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I loved them both. I loved my grandmother. I loved my aunt. They were like two grandmothers to me. And it was pretty heartbreaking that we couldn't, you know, celebrate Christmas with both of them at the same time or things like that. Your um, grandmother insisted on... Separate, total, yes. They could not be in the same room. We would have to go basically have you know, the party at one house and then sneak over next door and say hi to my aunt. (laughs) I know. And the worst part about it is my aunt was the cook in the family. So she would often be cooking the pasta that would be brought over to the dinner and then you wouldn't be able to eat it. I I mean, and a really loving and generous woman, but it's just really a heartbreaking story. Um, But yeah. And the other thing that it, it made me really obsessed with was kind of trying to figure out who my grandmother was before this accident. Because I'm the oldest grandchild. Um, and I was the only one with any memory of who she was as a person before the accident. What do you remember? I remember that she really loved me. I remember her yeah. taking care of me. I remember uh, running around in the, her garden, which um, they, my grandparents and my aunt and uncle both kept these incredible you know, gardens with these very perfect militaristic tomatoes and enormous cucumbers and figs. <laughs> and I mean, very stereotypically Italian, wonderfully fruitful gardens. And um, I, I remember her telling me stories and singing songs. She really loved a lot of folk songs and I still remember some of them. And um, and a lot of these memories are bolstered by photos of that time. Sure. But I, I feel the actual memories, you know, eroded a lot as I got older. Mm-hmm. And I became more and more uh, kind of wanting, desperate to restore the memory of the person she had been before she became this shell of a person. And um, and also because caretaking a, a person with that many needs, physical and and you know, behavioral needs, becomes very taxing for a family. And I, I think my the caretakers in my family are incredible people and they worked really hard. So this is no fault to any of them. Um, they, they kept her alive for another 30 years after right. um, this accident. But it does erode your memory of who she was before. All you remember is the person she's become. And that tragedy of old age, of, de- of decrepitude, really, yes. uh, that was heartbreaking too because this woman was our, our main and no one really remembered who she was. And I, I wanted to rectify that. So how did you go about writing a novel about her-ish? Oh, my God. Based well, on her. It started, you know, I tried I, so many times to write down her actual story. And I started when I was a little tiny girl, like five years. I mean, when the accident oh. happened, I started trying to write it down. <laughs> and I, I remember my first like, quote unquote novel was when I was eight. I tried to oh. write her 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 story down I called it an Italian girl um I know and uh and it I I believe my grandmother was what made me want to become a writer and and in the last 30 years I've written many other things and you know thrown them away and I pursued a, a career in literature and and I it's hard to say you know what turned into what but I do believe she was kind of the origin of why I wanted to be a storyteller involved involved in in literature way back then um but eventually the thing that unlocked my ability to write about her when I finally started the book that would become Stella Fortuna about five years ago was letting myself depart from the truth because the fact is that my my actual grandmother is lost to this medical miracle that saved her life and I couldn't ever access her personality so I had to really invent Stella and what happened to Stella and and so it was only really through freeing myself from the truth that I could actually you know finish a novel and write it down absolutely so so you had to kind of 
get into her headspace yeah. without knowing what was there. Yeah. Even as you you did retrace your steps a little bit, you went back to your family's home in Calabria. I did, yeah. And um, I assume you interviewed your family members? I did. I did so many interviews, <laughs> hundreds of hours of interviews. And um, I did go, I took a leave of absence from my job and I went and I lived in her village, which is called Yevoli. It's really small. It's less than 200 people. And um, and I was even able to interview some uh, octogenarians and nonagenarians there who remember the 20s right. and 30s. Um, and I, luckily, I met this young lawyer who was born in the village, and she helped translate the dialect for me, which was wonderful oh. because my Italian is not that good. <laughs> <laughs> so my, I book Italian, you know. Right. Um, but, yeah, so I, I was able to construct – as closely as I could, what the life of a woman who would have been born during that year in that place would have been like, mm-hmm. and and the steps she would have gone through, and and uh, so I invented this character of Stella to try to walk through some of those my grandmother's footsteps in these certain ways, and through emigrating in the 1930s, and um, you know early days of living in Hartford, Connecticut, in the Italian neighborhood there, right. which is now completely dissolved, but at the time was a really um, tight knit and vibrant, uh, you know, micro community, and and that was you know really fascinating. And of course, the thing that I find so enchanting about your book is that you capture a lifestyle that seems so far away. Yeah. And yet there is a presence there. There's an anger in it. There's a real feminist tilt to what you've written. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, when I started writing this book, I knew the plot because I knew the story I wanted to tell and the beats of my grandmother's life it would follow. And I didn't have... I didn't set out with an axe to grind. Um, But just (laughs) over the course of trying to figure out... I knew what would happen, but I didn't know why it would happen. And as I really explored the characters and figured out why things happened, I found that I had like 15 axes to grind. And (laughs) and a lot of them had to do with uh, the patriarchy. And and, and basically the incredible cost of patriarchy, not only on, uh, I mean, first and foremost, uh, on the women who are forced to live inside it, but also the men. Um, And, uh, you know, the south of Italy at the time I'm, I'm writing about the 1920s and 30s mm-hmm. is coming out of this 400 year cloud of Spanish colonialism. Right. Um, I mean, everyone was so exploited and uh, Catholicism was really used as a kind of weapon to keep poor people in place. Uh, the, the land was almost 80% owned by the church um, or absentee landholders, you know, feudal landholders who, um, if you were a poor person, you were renting the land that you were farming right. and then basically paying everything you made back to your landlord. Um, and you could certainly not afford the malaria medicine you would need to keep Ugh. your kids alive. And I right. mean, and um, it's just... To imagine the hardship in these tiny villages where uh, men had so little power and the only power that they had was over the women who, <laughs> through this you know, right. Catholic patriarchy, have to basically report to them in all things and obey them in all things. There are very good people and there are hardworking people and there are, you know, the, the heroes of these villages who kept them alive and together. And there are some very bad people who are allowed, you know, free reign over over the women that they control and um so you know we also tend to um tell 
the the immigration at the turn of the 20th century is so fraught for so many reasons as immigration has always been throughout mm-hmm. American history yes. but i mean the the united states was trying to come to terms with this need for cheap labor in wake of the um the american i mean the american civil war and uh the total crisis that these big businesses had when they couldn't rely on slave labor anymore mm-hmm. and and um yeah so they had this need for cheap labor but then also all of these people coming in from parts of of the world that they considered to be not American. And so it's this era of laws being laws and quotas being imposed. Um, I mean, even more so than before. And of uh, you know, challenges of finding the borders of states becoming less fluid than they were. And so you get a lot of men coming over, men looking for opportunity. Right. Um poor men who want to send money home to their families in Italy and they are the heroes of the Italian American community are these men who came over and risked everything alone and often disappeared or you know went through incredible hardships in mines on railroads um, for the sake of their families and you know rightfully heroic stories are remembered there but what we are not often talking about is the women who are left back at home to run families entirely on their own where they're not allowed to own property they're not allowed to work for money outside the house they have all of the children to care for um, and and in these circumscribed situations have to keep their families alive and their stories are fascinating and and through some of the interviews I conducted, I, I learned a lot about them, about these extraordinary women at um, the turn of the century. And so I was really excited to have a chance to write about women in this book and what their lives were like. Something that stuck out at me, um, I think I think you said this, but uh, it could be anyone, mm-hmm. who, any one of the wonderful women who worked on this book with you, um, that just about every difficult older woman, a mean grandma, whatever yeah. uh, version of that you've yeah. encountered yeah. probably has some incredibly painful backstory that we've never even considered. Yeah. I I think that one thing I've learned is that um, through talking to people, and many people have generously shared their stories, Italians and non-Italians, which right. is wonderful. But, um, you know, a lot of us have a grandma in our past. Mm-hmm. We'll put grandma in quotation marks. Because sure. she may yeah, be a, a mother or an aunt or, or a neighbor. And, um, and, oh, she was mean. She was a drunk. She ran off. She abandoned the family. Whatever the negative thing you mm-hmm. can ascribe to this woman um if you dig a little deeper and you ask why she is mean or why she turned to the bottle or why she ran away, there is there is always a reason that has to do with something that was asked or required of her, usually an unattractive or unfeminine decision she made either to protect and save, save her own life or that of a member of her family. And, and I think that... Um, like the greatest privilege for me that's come out of this book is that people are sharing their stories about about their own difficult foremothers and and knowing that the legacy deserves to be picked apart a little more and um and some of those kind of wounds irrigated a little bit i i think that the the difficult grandmothers of our past their their legacies do deserve restoration or at least exploration so um 
it's I feel very rewarded for having done that here, Absolutely. even with this fictional um, Stella. She she helped me feel better about my past and, you know, where I came from. She made me very proud to be an Italian-American, mm-hmm. um, not the other way around at all. So I, I encourage everyone to explore those stories. There's a line that Stella says to herself upon meeting a man who, no spoilers, will become very important in her life. And I wanted to read that. Um, All is pretending to be a gentleman. A real gentleman would have backed off when she made it clear that she didn't want to go out with him. No, he was like the rest of them, the exhausting conspiracy of men working together to make women do what they wanted them to. And wow, <laughs> um, what a level of awareness, though, that that there is something more at play than um, just being a good Italian girl serving her church and her men. Yeah, Stella, Stella is aware um, of that. And and the uh, the line that that you just read um, that level of conspiracy theory. Yes. Um, which I think she believes really deeply. Yes. And I don't know if the men in her life would even no. be able to identify that or, or relate to it at all, even though for her it becomes a reality. Um, but I, I do think that, uh, that that's an important, um, just like the systemic cost of patriarchy and, and what it does, what we assume, um, the idea that a, a young man has a right to propose to a girl's father and then have have the proposal accepted or you know to, you know that's just a reality in her world and right. it's um, still i mean today there are many yeah. people who think that's just okay. fine yeah. yeah yeah and so your portrayal of this italian american family is a little bit different from the examples we see in culture quite a bit and I was wondering if you could talk about oh that. yeah I mean it was actually pretty frustrating when I was frustrating in the best way when I was researching this book because I wanted to read everything that had ever been written about Calabria and then when I didn't find much you know telegraphing out to the south of Italy still not very much at right. all it's um an ignored part of the world um wrongfully I would say I think most Italian Americans have their roots in southern Italy whether or not they know or acknowledge that and it's a rich and beautiful and ancient ancient culture 3,000 years old but Mm -hmm. because of the colonialism that affected the south and not the north all of the glamour and the art and the money is in the north of Italy it's where it's where we go we go visit Venice and Florence and you know we look at the wonders of Rome but we don't go where our people are from because of it's become this you know um, cultural backwater. I don't. I don't ascribe to that. I'm just uh, quoting. And so, there is not much of a body of literature in Italian or in English about this part of the world. Mm. And um, in part, that's because there was a very low literacy rate up, right up until sure. the 1920s. And so, there aren't really native voices that were allowed to write about their culture. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also just um, in general. I think when people did have the tools to write about it, they felt a need to do one of two things, either to be very rah, 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 here's what's so great, this is, you know, very paint as rosy a picture mm-hmm. as possible. Um, and you see that in a lot of, of um, Italian-American writing, that people are kind of afraid to expose any of the dirty laundry. Or the flip side, um, to talk about how terrible everything is right. all the time and, and how, um, you know, this is what 
journalists and humani- humanitarian journalists and photographers throughout the 20th century. This is how they have immortalized the south of Italy. It's a, a hotbed of crime. It's a hotbed of right. poverty. It's This was incredibly frustrating to me because I, like I said, I'm very proud of my roots. I think Calabria is beautiful and, and wealthy and in culture and um, there's tons just to love and appreciate there. And I thought maybe if we're seeing it through the lens of individual stories of people, then it could bridge the gap between these two things where we can talk about the hardship mm-hmm. that the the region has suffered, but still talk about the heroism of the individual people. And I really wanted to create that book that would come into the middle space where we have real people with real problems, but we see the reason to love the people and the place and the culture. Love it. Um, how invested were you in the Neapolitan novel? See, Elena Ferrante. Oh my God. <laughs> I, to answer your question, I, uh, Story of the Lost Child came out a couple weeks before my honeymoon. So I took it on my honeymoon with me and spent my honeymoon sobbing over that book instead of with my <laughs> poor husband, who was very forbearing because he's also a book lover. So <laughs> he understands. That, he, yes, he was a good sport about it, but I'm very very invested in them and and did you watch the yes i did i love um i love so much about elena fronte but i especially love what the books and now the series are doing with the dialect the quote-unquote neapolitan dialect the fact that the um the book features um is talks so much about the difference between high italian that is associated with culture and and um you know well-breadness yes. versus the real language that elena is able to express herself in best and how that divide of always having to be um to play the part of an intellectual in a foreign language right. versus her true self who she feels she reverts to and i i just i love that i love what it says about being a, a woman and about trying to um you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps um, and also about regionality in Italy, which is yeah. fascinating. And um, and yeah, so I, I thought that was so great. Dialect is really important to me, too. So, And um, any other Italian-American portrayals that you want to talk about? In terms of other literature about Calabria, yes. uh, there's a really good book called Elizabeth Street, uh, by Lori Fabiani, which is um, it's set in right after an earthquake that happened that a tsunami hit uh, the Calabria, the south of Calabria in 1905 and 1908, actually two in a row. And an entire seaside town was sort of was decimated. A lot of people died. And um, and it's about the immigration wave that happened afterward Mm -hmm. to New York. And it's about um, the Black Hand, which is kind of one of these nascent organized crime groups that was operating in Little Italy, where um, basically Italians were preying on other Italians, uh, um, immigrants without any recourse to any of the you know, law enforcement or anything like that. And I, I think that these, um, the origins of organized crime in the Italian-American community, as well as in Italy, it's it's a really important conversation. It can't kind of be underestimated because it's defined a lot of, of who we are and the rules um, and restrictions you see. Uh, still, what's, what's going on in Calabria now? Calabria is a, a mob-run uh, mm. part of the country. And... Um, and I think it's it's really important to not underestimate how terrifying and awful organized crime is. I'm wondering if there's mm-hmm. like a really stereotypical mm-hmm. mob mm-hmm. film, that TV. I, that I love or don't love? Yes. 
I um I love mob related media as much as I hate <laughs> the mob. So just to be sure. clear, I think I think any mafia media that glamorizes the mafia in any way is problematic and irresponsible. Yes. Organized crime is terrible and yes. it's it's basically a bunch of dopes who are looking <laughs> for easy money and the violence that it causes on innocent bystanders is like there's no um there's just no excuse for it. And all that said, I am obsessed with The Sopranos. Yeah. I, I cannot imagine a more accurate and vivid and and perfectly drawn um, depiction of an Italian-American community, albeit one that's very organized crime focused. Yes. And um, and I just I I love David Chase and every choice he ever made with that and I'm always like looking for the next media that will make me feel the way the Sopranos made me feel it wasn't gaudy you know (laughs) (laughs) but uh but that said I I have a whole list of you know you mentioned I I am an editor at um Soho Press where I have been editing our crime fiction list for a long time so crime is of great great interest to me Mm -hmm. both in the real world and uh and in literature and, and film um, and I hope that I'm up to the task of of maybe my next book could possibly be an organized crime murder oh, mystery situation. Yeah, I'm I'm working on that right now. So, tell me about some of the crime books you've worked on. Oh what my are your favorites! Goodness, I well I can't possibly play well, favorites no, no, amongst you can't, my right. children, but um, I. I'm lucky enough to work on a list that is uh, international multicultural yes. crime fiction. So it um, has allowed me to really explore my own personal obsessions, which include um, literature in translation, yes. multicultural literature, um, and also uh, a lot of fun things like historical fiction and, and um, a, one really fantastic book that we published recently is called The Widows of Malabar Hill by Sujata Massey and just a couple days ago it won the Mary Higgins Clark Award. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. That is it's set in 1920s in Bombay and it was Bombay at the time Right. Um, and the main character is a 20-something Parsi woman who is the only female lawyer in Bombay and um, she's inspired by a historical figure, uh, Cornelia Sarabji, who um, basically got a a law degree from Oxford, was never able to be a barrister because women couldn't be barred at this time, but could practice as a solicitor. And since so many women in India at this time were living in Purda and couldn't ever speak to a man. I mean, from all different religious backgrounds, right. Hindi, Muslim, um, and and Parsi, I mean, everyone. Um, they never had access to legal representation, so they could easily be taken advantage of. So having this female lawyer suddenly cracks open a whole new world of well mysteries to solve in our fiction sure yeah agency yeah exactly yeah um so that's a really wonderful uh traditional mystery series i've been able to work on Mm. um on the flip side of very noir non-traditional i was able to commission the translation of a Calabrese crime novel ah. called Black Souls by um, the author is Joaquino Criaco and that just came out and that is the story of three boys growing up in the Aspermonte Mountains this very remote region in Calabria like even more remote than what I wrote about um, which is where the Indrangheta the Calabrese mob grew yes. up out of bandit culture and it's just this fascinating um, kind of dreamlike 
horror story about this criminal coming of age of these three boys. And so I get to do all kinds of things. And Love it. yeah, it's, it's a fun job. Mm-hmm.